This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, sitting in for Terry Gross. Broadway dimmed its lights last Saturday evening in tribute to Angela Lansbury. The acclaimed film and musical actress and star of the TV series Murder, she wrote, died last week. She was 96. Lansbury delivered unforgettable performances for her starring roles in the Broadway musicals Mame, Gypsy, and Sweeney Todd. Her work on stage earned her five Tony Awards, plus a Lifetime Achievement Tony Award earlier this year. In Sweeney Todd, Lansbury played Mrs. Lovett, who runs an unsuccessful bakery in London in the Victorian era and is inspired to team up with a local barber named Sweeney Todd. Todd is a serial killer driven by rage, intent on murdering many of his customers. In the song A Little Priest, Mrs. Lovett suggests a particularly gruesome partnership. Her meat pie business needs a lift, and she and Sweeney imagine how profitably they can recycle the bodies that are piling up, and the variety of meat pies they can offer their customers. Lawyers rather nice. If it's for a price... Order something else, though, to follow, since no one should swallow it twice. Have you any dean? No, but if you're British and loyal, you might enjoy Royal Marine. Anyway, it's clean, though, of course, it tastes of wherever it's been. Is that squire on the fire? Mercy knows, sir, look closer, you'll notice it's closer. Looks thicker, more like thicker. No, it has to be grosser. It's green. (laughs) (laughs) The history of the world, my love. Save a lot of graves, do a lot of relatives' favors. Is those below serving those up above? Everybody shaves, so there should be plenty of flavors. How gratifying for once to know that those above will serve those down below. Angela Lansbury and Len Carew from Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. Angela Lansbury's career spanned seven decades. She started young. When she was only 17, George Cukor cast her as the maid in his 1944 film Gaslight. She was nominated for an Academy Award for that performance and received another nomination the following year for her role in The Picture of Dorian Gray. In the 60s, she was nominated again for her terrific performance as a manipulative mother in The Manchurian Candidate. In the 1991 Disney film Beauty and the Beast, she was the voice of the talking teapot, Mrs. Potts. But she's perhaps best known for her role as Jessica Fletcher in the long-running CBS mystery series Murder, She Wrote, which ran for 12 seasons from 1984 until 1996. It was created by writers and producers from Columbo, with Lansbury playing a mystery writer and amateur sleuth who lives in the small town of Cabot Cove, helping solve the murders that seem to pop up there on a weekly basis. In the show's very first episode, Jessica Fletcher was a newly published author, poking around a crime scene when she encounters the local police chief, played by Ned Beatty. What do you think? I beg your pardon? You know people, ma'am, I can tell that. You see the little things, the, the inconsistencies. So, what do you think about Mrs. McCallum? Well, surely she's not a suspect, is she? At the moment, she is the suspect. She is? Oh, my goodness. 
Chief, did Mr. Giles tell you about last night's intruder? Oh, you mean the private eye from New York? You think he killed the captain? Oh, no, no, not at all. But I'm sure you noticed the shoes on the body floating in the swimming pool. Shoes? Now, last night at the party, Captain Caleb was wearing black patent leather, highly polished. Is that so? Now, that private detective was discovered on the second floor. I'm almost sure that he got in through that window. Now, look here. You see this broken plant? And there, that footprint. Now, in order to climb up to that window, that detective would have had to be wearing soft rubber-soled shoes. Terry Gross interviewed Angela Lansbury twice. First, in 1980. But we'll start with an interview recorded 20 years later, in 2000. Let's start with your childhood. You grew up in London. Your mother was an actress. What kind of work did she do? My mother was an Irish actress, and she appeared in a number of various plays during the time that she was working. She uh, started off doing uh, Shaw, uh, George Bernard Shaw, and also Shakespeare, and uh, became also the leading lady of of the great uh, English sort of matinee actor who was Sir Gerald de Maurier. So she she played a variety of roles, actually. She was a serious actress. She was not a comedy, uh, musical comedy actress. She was a serious actress. During World War II, when you were young, your brothers were sent to a family in the countryside, as as many British children were, to get away from the bombing. But you wanted to stay home. But your school was moving, so you you weren't able to go to school. I think you worked out a deal with your mother that uh, you would be tutored at home and then also take singing and dancing lessons? That's absolutely true, and I thank goodness I chose to do that or that she agreed to let me do that but I think she also was quite happy to have me stay with her I was the sort of remaining uh, sibling who was around and therefore she was quite happy to have me stay at home with her and have classes and start my dramatic training you came to the United States with your mother I believe it was during World War II Yes, we came in 1940, which was uh, a terrible year because it was the on uh, the, during the year was the onset of the really big bombing of Britain. Liverpool was bombed right after we left on our ship, which was a Canadian Pacific liner, which was uh, headed for Canada. My mother had been widowed five years earlier by the death of my father, and uh, we had. No, she also was in the in the middle of a, a rather unproductive and unsuccessful love affair. She wanted to get away from it. But mainly, number one, she recognized the fact that Britain was likely to be bombed and that London really was no place for us to remain if we could possibly get away. Did you and your mother both want to act in the United States? Yes. My mother wanted to pick up eventually her career, and when we first arrived, we, we used to do readings together. We'd do Shakespeare. We'd go to the various schools all around uh, Prairie and New York and Miss Watts-its names. I forget the name. I shouldn't remember. I should remember. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and also some of the great prep schools outside of the city. And for $25, which in those days was quite a lot of money, we would do scenes from uh, Romeo and Juliet, and uh, she would do scenes of Desdemona and... Um, to, she also did epic poems uh, by Alice Dewar Miller and various other writers who were writing epic poems about the war at that time. And uh, she was very, very good at it. She was a great recitalist, as they used to call them in Victorian days, or Edwardian days, I should say. So sometimes you worked as a team. Did you ever feel competitive with your mother? 
I never felt competitive with her, no. I know that eventually, I think, uh, it crept in, you know, that green-eyed monster sort of crept in from my mother's side. But um, She felt competitive toward you? Yes, I think so, because she thought, after all, she was a woman. She was only in her 40s, and she was the most beautiful woman, my mother. And uh, she wanted to have a career. She was a very earnest and terribly hardworking actor, actress who found it working and learning roles very, very difficult. Acting for her required tremendous concentration and, and devotion to duty. And uh, she loved doing it, but it put a tremendous strain on her, uh, whereas I seemed to do it with one hand tied behind my back. So it was, uh, there was a, an, an unevenness, shall we say, in our, uh, our approach to, the jo- to work. And you started getting roles in movies. Eventually, of course, when we, we moved out to Los Angeles, and uh, I got my first big interview, and I got the part. So my uh, career in movies was jump-started by my being accepted for the role of Nancy in Gaslight. Yeah, let's talk about what led to that audition. You, you thought you were auditioning for, you thought your first role would be in the picture of Dorian Gray. Can, mm-hmm. can you explain how you got a lead for that movie, but ended up making Gaslight first? <laughs> yes. Well, I was introduced to the studio, which was MGM, by a young man who was being considered for the role of Dorian Gray. His name was Michael Dine. And uh, he arranged that uh, the casting director would see me, this young English girl who at that time was, um, I think I was 17. And uh, I went to the studio with my mother and was interviewed for the part of uh, Sybil Vane in in Dorian Gray. Uh, And the the head of casting, a man called Billy Grady, came into the room while I was sitting there. Um, He said, sort of whispered in the ear of Mr. Ballerina, the the man I was seeing, "Uh, you know, uh, you should should suggest that this young lady meets uh, George Cukor, who's trying to cast the role of the maid in Gaslight. So right then and there, I was whipped off to to meet uh, George Cukor. So, well, well, the rest is, as they say, is history. Why don't we hear a short scene from your screen debut in Gaslight? And in this movie, Charles Boyer plays a husband who's trying to to drive his wife mad. His wife is played by Ingrid Bergman. And this is basically a scheme to institutionalize her so he could take her jewels and her money. You play the maid that he hires. In this scene, you're getting flirtatious with him. Seems to be getting worse, doesn't she, sir? You will please not refer to your mistress as she. Thank you, Nancy. Going to work on your tunes again tonight, sir? You're always working, aren't you? Yes. What are you doing with your evening out? Oh, I'm going to a musical. Up in a balloon, boys, up in a I've never been to an English musical. Oh, you don't know what you've missed, sir. Up in a balloon, boys, up in a balloon. You like it a lot, sir. Well, you must see about that. And whom are you going to the musical with? Gentlemen friends, sir. Oh, now you know, Nancy, don't you? That gentlemen friends are sometimes inclined to take liberties with young ladies. Oh, no, sir. Not with me. I can take care of myself when I want to. You know, Nancy, it strikes me that you're not at all the kind of girl that your mistress should have for a housemaid. No, sir. She's not the only one in the house, is she? <laughs> <laughs> Angela Lansbury, was, <laughs> was that your bit of business, singing uh, that vaudeville kind of song, Up in a Balloon? No, nothing was my idea in that movie. That was all prearranged and uh, thought up by, uh, by George Kukon. 
were there, and John Van Druten, who was the uh, screenwriter of that. Were there things that you were very naive and in the dark about in that film that you tried to cover up for so that people wouldn't know how green you were? I can't honestly say, uh, except by my onset demeanor. I think my onset demeanor was a very, very careful, covered, rather shy uh, attitude about what I was doing. You see, I've always been a very private person. Uh, when it comes to the work, I'm I'm on solid ground. Uh, when it comes to the Angela Lansbury, the the, the young woman. I was on very uncertain ground. But I, in most instances, I was pretty quick to pick up directorial indications from somebody like George Cukor uh, because he was extremely clear and funny and I could understand what he wanted and then deliver it. This is what I do and this is what I always maintained throughout my career was that, that I had that ability to take direction and also to understand what, the, what was required of the character. Do you remember any of the more uh, helpful or interesting directions that Kukor gave you? Well, simply that he felt that she was a naughty, rather dirty girl. And uh, that, that was the way he saw her. And when I gave him that, he thought it was terribly funny, and he encouraged me to be this snotty, cocky little person who uh, was able to dominate Charles Boyer with inference, uh, what I inferred was was a great deal more than what I was saying, and my ability to do that worked, thank goodness, because I understood exactly what Kyoko was asking me to do, you know. And I said, "Well, you know, she's not the only one in the house, is she?" You know, that that, that, that <laughs> right. came. I mean, totally. I understood that, and that made me roar with laughter. Well, you were still a minor when you were making Gaslight. What kind of special provisions were made for you on the set? Oh, it was required that there was a, a social worker with me until my 18th birthday, which I, I celebrated on the set of Gaslight, actually. And uh, I always remember it because <laughs> uh, Ingrid and Charles and George Cukor were so wonderfully kind, and Ingrid gave me uh, lovely bottles of strategy, which was a lovely smelly cologne, which I... I'd never had anything as lovely as that. And uh, powder, you know, sort of talcum powder and things. A set. I always remember that. It's interesting, the things you do remember. <laughs> and uh, uh, we celebrated, and I was able to take a cigarette out of a packet in my purse and smoke it, which I hadn't been able to let on that I had been smoking from the time I was really about 14 years old. I say that without any sense of pride at all, and I stopped smoking 30 years ago. As I, I don't know whether you remember, but I do smoke... A rather long cigarettello in, in, the, in the movie. And uh, that was part of the, uh, uh, the business in the movie of Gaslight. But uh, they only let me puff it, and I wasn't allowed to inhale, as Mr. Clinton would say. So <laughs> I, I, but in fact, I had been smoking for a couple of years. Um, Gaslight is one of those movies with really nice black and white lighting. Do you remember getting lit for the film and what that process was like? Very well. I do remember very well. Uh, Joseph Ruttenberg was the uh, DP on that, and uh, he was an extraordinarily careful, painstaking person when it came to lighting women. And I think some of the shots of uh, Ingrid Bergman are some of the most beautiful, tremulous, lovely shots I've ever seen in black and white photography, except for what he did for Garbo and those. But certainly we all uh, were the beneficiaries of his artistry. You were nominated for an Oscar Best Supporting Actress for that first role. Mm -hmm. You lost to Ethel Barrymore. 
<laughs> it must have been pretty heady to be nominated your first time out. Oh, I should say so. I was absolutely knocked off my pins. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. <laughs> Did you feel comfortable at MGM in Hollywood in the 40s um, with all the kind of glamour and publicity surrounding the movies then? It was a hard adjustment for me. I wanted to play the game, you know. I wanted to be like the rest of the girls. I was still enough of a uh, an adolescent in my heart, uh, although I always say that I sort of missed my adolescence. But part of me wanted to be like uh, the, the girls who were under contract. Uh, but I really wasn't. I just didn't fit in that mold. And uh, I know now that uh, it was a difficult period of trying to be what I really wasn't. The only, uh, let's say, the comfort I took was, and even then I kind of lent on it, was the fact that I knew that I was an actress and that I could play different roles because I was continuously being offered extraordinary stretches, shall we say, as an actress, to play parts which were way out of my range. However, I would do it, and I managed to just skin by by the, by the skin of my teeth, playing roles that, where I was much older than I actually was. I was playing um, Frank Morgan's wife as the Queen of France in, in The Three Musketeers. I got to dress up and look look kind of staggering and, and terrific with all of this this paraphernalia that was laid on me. But I, I was still way out of my age range. So I was never going to get to play the girl next door, and I was never going to be groomed to be a glamorous movie star. And uh, I, I, I sort of realized that, so I had to make peace with myself on that score. Well, how did you feel about playing the, the older uh, women? I hated it. I mean, I didn't enjoy it, and I fought it, and I tried hard. I would go to the studio heads and say, look, don't make me play this part. But they would sort of say, well, if you will play that part this week, we'll let you do such and so next week kind of attitude. So I would end up doing it. It, it all added to my, my training, really. It was like training on the job. And uh, I think I, you, you never, nothing is ever goes to waste as an actress. You docket it all away and you remember and you use stuff later. So it, was, it didn't do any harm. And I was being paid, good heavens. You know, I was under contract and uh, I was making 500 a week or 750 a week, which in those days was an enormous amount of money. It enabled me to help my family. And uh, so I was a working actress. Angela Lansbury speaking to Terry Gross in 2000. Lansbury died last week at age 96. Coming up in the second half, Lansbury talks about playing Mama Rose in Gypsy, Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd, Elvis's mom in the film Blue Hawaii, and Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, in for Terry Gross, Back with more of Terry's interview from 2000 with Broadway film and TV actress Angela Lansbury. Lansbury died last week. She was 96. Her stage performances earned her five Tony Awards, as well as a special Life Achievement Tony. Let me, let me ask you about um, uh, the British production of Gypsy, in which uh, you played... Um, Gypsy Rose Lee's mother. The role yes. originated on Broadway by Ethel Merman. Mm-hmm. And you were asked to do this in England by Arthur Lawrence, who, who wrote the book and, and directed the, the British production. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you knew Merman's work. I, I assume you probably saw her on Broadway in, in, in Gypsy. How did you feel about um, taking on a, a role that she had done? I was completely nonplussed. I said no. <laughs> in 1972, when Barry Brown and Arthur and uh, Fritz Holt, Barry's partner, asked me to do Gypsy in London, I said, you've got to be kidding. I said, I could no more uh, approach that role having treasured the recording of uh, Ethel Merman singing Rose. Uh, I know what's required here, and I know what an absolutely tremendous, overpowering role it is, and I I don't think I'm up for it. I mean, uh, and then as the year went by, Arthur really got at me, and he said, Angie, he said, Rose, I wrote Rose as a great character. It's an enormous acting role. We want you to, we know you can sing it as far as uh, your own rendition of of the songs. We want your dramatic input. We want the the role to be played by an actress, and, and we would really encourage you to do this. So I said yes, but it took me a year. Um, well, I should mention that in Craig Zaden's book about Stephen Sondheim, Arthur Lawrence really praises your um, interpretation of this role. And he says, with no disrespect to Merman, it's the first time that the number Rose's turn was done the way it should be. It's hair-raising, and it's because Angie's an actress. I know of no one else in the musical theater who can sing as well as she does and be the actress that she is. So I'd like to play part of Rose's turn, and this is, you know, toward the end of Gypsy. You've been the stage mother, you know, throughout your life, and Gypsy Rose Lee has become a, your daughter has become a famous stripper, but you're wondering, when's it your turn? When's it your turn to, to be on stage and to be before the lights? So you're on stage in front of an empty theater um, and singing your number. And anything else you want to say about it before we hear it? No, except to say that uh, it's one of the most rewarding pieces of musical theater to perform there is, and one of the hardest. Here's Angela Lansbury. Why did I do it? Why did it get me? Scrapbooks full of me in the background. Give them love and why does it get you? Why does it get you? One quick look, cause each of them leaves you. All your life, and why does it get you? Thanks a lot, now for the garbage. They take bows, and you're batting zero. I had a dream. I dreamed it for you, June. It wasn't for me, Hurley. And if it wasn't for me, then where would you be, Miss Gypsy Rosie? Well, someone tell me, when is it my turn? Don't I get a dream for myself? Starting now, it's gonna be my turn. Gangway world, get off of my runway. Starting now, I found a thousand. This time, boys, I'm taking the vows and everything's coming up. Thank <laughs> you. 
Lansbury, doing that number must have been exhausting. I mean, it seems like it would be so emotionally depleting. Forget everything that it does with your throat, but just the emotion of it. What was it like right after that number on, on, you know, on stage? Um, people ask me that often, and I must say when people would come backstage after the performance, they would be in tears. I would be drinking a glass of water and breathing a big sigh of relief. I never allow the emotion of a scene, if possible, to get to me. Um, This is not true uh, always, but in that case, I was doing it eight performances a week, you have to understand, and I could not allow it to uh, intrude into my own emotional... uh, you know, state. So I, I, I could do it. It's a, it's a technique. Uh, it is a technique, and that's acting. <laughs> and people don't really always believe this. And and uh, some people are absolutely drained and washed out, and they sit in their dressing rooms for hours after having done uh, Roses Turn, I'm sure, and and say, I, I don't know whether I can leave the theater. But I was not one of those people. To me, when it's over, it's over. You know. Angela Lansbury speaking to Terry Gross in the year 2000. Lansbury died last week at the age of 96. Coming up, Lansbury talks about playing Mrs. Lovett in Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. That's from an interview she did with Terry in 1980. This is Fresh Air. We're paying tribute to Broadway film and TV actress Angela Lansbury, who died last week. Terry first interviewed her in 1980 when Lansbury was starring as Mrs. Lovett in Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. That role earned her one of her many Tonys. The show was about a murderous barber in Victorian London. I wonder what the first things were they told you about it to explain what the show would be like. Well, they took it for granted that I knew the legend because um, coming from England originally... I know all about Sweeney Todd. When I say I know all about Sweeney Todd, I know that he was almost a, a grand guignol character that was uh, sung about and little doggerel rhymes were written about, you know, Sweeney Todd will get you if you don't watch out. He's, he's a character almost like Jack the Ripper in uh, English folklore. And he turns up and people quote his name all the time. He is also uh, written into a, a several very melodramatic types of uh, almost grand guignol one-actors that actors used to go out on the road with in the turn of the century. So he's a very well-known name and character in uh, theatrical folklore. This is the third musical that Stephen Sondheim uh, had a a contribution to. Of course, he wrote this, but he he, uh, did the lyrics for Gypsy, which you uh, starred in. Yes, it's the third time I've worked with him, actually. Is he the kind of composer who will sit down at the piano with you and, and sing his songs for you to give you an idea of what he had in his mind? Absolutely. Steve always auditions all his own work. And the thing he loves to do when he has a new song, he wants you to come over and hear it. And uh, he'll, when he's got a few, he'll say, come on over, I want to play you, what a, you know, play you the song that I've written for you in such and such a place in the script. And you know, I'll pop over to his house and uh, he'll sit down at the piano and he'll sing the song kills himself laughing when he was when he was playing uh, the worst pies in London can you imagine trying to play that and make all the sound effects and 
you know, all the beats and so on, which are done with, with the dough and the rolling pin and all of that. He'd worked it all out, every piece of business in that song Steve had written. It was right there on the music. She swats the fly, she hits the dough, she pops her mouth or whatever she does, you know, at that moment. And no wonder with the price of meat what it is when you get it. Never thought I'd live to see the day. Men are thinking what's a treat. Finding poor animals what are dying in the street. Mrs. Mooney has a pie shop. Does a business, but I've noticed something weird. Lately, all the neighbors' cats have disappeared. After to wind it to a what I call enterprise. Popping pussies into pies. Wouldn't do in my shop. Just the thought of it's enough to make you sick. And I'm telling you, the pussy cats is quick. Now denying times is hard, sir. Even harder than the worst pies in London. Only loud and nothing more is than just revolting, all greasy and gritty. It looks like it's molting and tastes like, well, pity a woman alone. And the worst boys in London Ah, sir Times is hard Times is hard I want to talk with you about the character that you play. Now, you had said that finding the character was left completely to you and you went mm-hmm. back to uh, books written about Sweeney Todd in the original book to find out a little more about the character. Now, you manage in the production to convey simultaneously meanness and humor, an ability to be murderous with an ability to be extremely warm and friendly and huggable, mm-hmm. lovable, and you have the audience on your side as you're participating yes. in, in these murders. What are some of the ways do you feel that you're able to convey all of that and have have the audience with you like that? Now, Mrs. Lovett is is really a conglomerate of all of that knowledge that I have of English theatre going way, way back. She is almost a choreographed character. She is so broad in her scope. She can... the, The idea is that she can do anything. She can slit your throat... And you will love her as she's doing it because she does it with such such a total childlike joy and amorality that anything goes. Now, this is everybody's dream of a companion, somebody who will adapt instantly to anything you would like to expect from her at that moment. Now, that's what we all long for. Sweeney Todd, lucky devil, found the very one. Now, occasionally she goes... She goes off on her own little tangent, such as when she confides to him that her dream in life is really to retire by the seaside. But if she didn't, and if he didn't, provide her with the little house by the sea, she would still do anything in the world that he wanted. Why? Because she absolutely adores him, and always did. Now, these are all the things that I know about Mrs. Lovett. I have to try and sell you on the fact that th- that this is the case about this this old bag lady but um, I do understand these things about her and so that is what I am playing all the time she is a victim of the gutter she is on the edge of the establishment absolutely anything goes the fact that they have no money and no food for the pies the most obvious thing in the world to her is to utilize those poor fellas coming down the chute 
Well, you know me, bright ideas just pop into my head and I keep thinking. Seems a downright shame. Shame? Seems an awful waste. Such a nice plump frame. What's his name as? Ad has. Nor it can't be traced. Business needs are lift. Debts to be erased. Think of it as thrift, as a gift. If you get my drift, no? Seems an awful waste. I mean, with the price of meat, what it is, when you get it, if you get it. Huh. Good you got it. Take, for instance, Mrs. Mooney and a pie shop. Business never better using only pussycats and toast. And a pussy's good for maybe six or seven at the most. And I'm sure they can't compare as far as taste. Mrs. Lovett, what a charming notion. Well, and I'll be practical and not appropriate waste. as always. Mrs. Lovett, how I'd live without you idea. all these years, I'll never know. Think I'll about it. Lots of other gentlemen will soon be coming for a shame. Won't they? Think about it. What's the sound of the world out there? What, Mr. Todd? What, Mr. Todd? What is that sound? Those crunching noises pervading the air. Yes, Mr. Todd, yes, Mr. Todd, yes, all around. It's man devouring man, my dear. And who are we to deny it in here? Ah, oh, these are desperate times, Mrs. Lovett. And desperate measures must be taken. Here we are now, hot out of the oven. What is that? It's priest. Have a little priest. Is it really good? Sir, it's too good, at least. Then again, they don't commit sins of the flesh. So it's pretty fresh. Awful lot of fat. Only where it's at. Haven't you got poet or something like that? Now you see, the trouble with poet is how do you know it's deceased? Try the priest. Heavenly. Not as hearty as Bishop, perhaps. Angela Lansbury and Len Carew from Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. Let's return to Terry's interview from 2000 with the late Broadway film and TV actress Angela Lansbury. I want to ask you about a different kind of musical. In the Elvis Presley musical Blue Hawaii, you played Elvis's mom. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what What did you think about the opportunity? It's one to... of my great claims to fame. Yes. I've got to tell you. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, were you interested in Elvis at all? Of course, I was interested in Elvis. Who wouldn't be? I mean, he was such a riveting, uh, dazzling person. But in those days, of course, he 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 just come out of the army, and he was a sweet, sexy young Southern guy, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, I, I was just as interested in it as everybody in uh, how he was, and he always treated me very courteously and, and as I say, with uh, great pause. And uh, I liked him. He was, he was terrific. What was it like being, like, the adult, the mother, in what was clearly, like, a movie for teenagers? Well, you see, uh, I got to play a comedy part. She was really a bit of a character. And uh, I was exercising my southern accent, for the first time, and uh, therefore it, it was a, a, I was playing a character. I was playing this this nutty 
crazy lady who was his mom. And I loved doing it, and it, it as was most enjoyable, and he, we worked well together, and uh, it worked like gangbusters. Were there things that were done for Elvis's image in the movie that you found interesting or amusing? I didn't notice that. I wasn't aware of it particularly. Um, uh, looking back, he, he, I just remember him being surrounded with the cousins, and he was always breaking bricks, or he was doing karate at that time. And uh, so they were always worried that he was going to break his hand just oh. before he was going to shoot. <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, but, but, but he was this wonderfully built, uh, vital young fellow, and he, he really just loved life and was everything everybody expected him to be. Let's hear a scene from the movie. Now we must decide on the orchestra for the party. Oh, well, if, if you'll excuse me, I think I'll freshen up a little before dinner. Oh. Aloha. Yeah. Orchestra? Say, Mom, how about my friends? You mean those native boys? They got the swingingest group in the islands. Oh, they are not musicians, Chadwick. They're just peach boys. Mom, they've turned professional. They do a lot of work around town. Now, how'd you know that? Um, why, he corresponded with them while he was in Europe. Now, Chadwick, we might as well have an understanding right off. You've come home to stay, and your life's going to be different. You're going to associate yourself with the finer elements on this island, and you're going to have a responsible position with a great southern Hawaiian fruit company, and you're going to marry a girl of your own class and be a gentleman like your daddy. <coughs> Mom, do we have to discuss this now? Yes, I don't want you wasting your precious time on those beach boys or that native girl. Sara Lee, the boy just came home. Well, I think he should know exactly what we expect of him. Well, I know what you expect of me. I thought maybe after I hit you in the army, I could come back here and do what you want me to. But now I know I can't. Well, how do you know? You just got back. I've been back for five days, Mom. Five days? Yes, and for five days I've been at the beach living in my shack and dreading the time I would have to come back here and tell you. I'm not going to go to work for the Great Southern Hawaiian Fruit Company. Sarah Lee. Yes, Daddy? Let's talk about it tomorrow, son. Home oh, five days, and he didn't even come to his mother. Mom, it's time I started... Well, Angela Lansbury, the year after you made Blue Hawaii, you made The Manchurian Candidate in 1962, and in this movie, a terrific movie, you're a manipulative, domineering mother and wife who's trying to promote the political career of your husband, and it turns out you're actually part of a conspiracy to assassinate the political opponent and take over the country. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, you're telling your son, who has been brainwashed, that he has to be the assassin. You are to shoot the presidential nominee through the head, and Johnny will rise gallantly to his feet and lift Ben Arthur's body in his arms and stand in front of the microphones and begin to speak. The speech is short, but it's the most rousing speech I've ever read. It's been worked on here and in Russia on and off for over eight years. I shall force someone to take the body away from him. Then Johnny will really hit those microphones and those cameras with blood all over him, fighting off anyone who tries to help him, defending America even if it means his own death, rallying a nation of television viewers into hysteria, to sweep us up into the White House with powers that will make martial law seem like anarchy. You know, this is very important. I want the nominee to be dead about two minutes after he begins his acceptance speech, depending on his reading time under pressure. 
You are to hit him right at the point that he finishes the phrase, nor would I ask of any fellow American in defense of his freedom that which I would not gladly give myself, my life before my liberty. Is that absolutely clear? Wow. <laughs> and at the end well of that scene, speech. Yes. And at the end of that scene, before you send your son off to kill the candidate, you kiss him on each cheek, then kiss him fully on the mouth. Oh, yes. How'd you feel about that scene? Oh, I thought it was very telling. <laughs> very telling. And how'd you feel about playing such a, a really evil role? They are the best. Uh, any <laughs> actress will tell you that evil roles to play are the best. You can go to town, you know. And uh, in that instance, I think that woman had so many layers and uh, so many personas, in a sense. Uh, she was riveting and so interesting to, to play. I relish the, the, having had that opportunity to play that role because... I don't think there are many written like that. I, I consider that she was the leer among, um, you know, movie women. We've talked about your, your long and really wonderful career on stage and screen. I think uh, some of our listeners will know you best from television for your work on uh, Murder, She Wrote, as uh, as. Jessica, Jessica Fletcher, Fletcher, who has mm-hmm. solved uh, God knows how many murders <laughs> over the years that you, you did that show. Did you ever count how many murders you solved? Uh, 264. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> what was it like for you after playing so many different roles over the years to settle into one role for several years? Uh, when I first started Murder, She Wrote, I thought it would last maybe two, three years, you know, or, or maybe a year if we were lucky. Uh, but when it extended and I realized... The deep inroads it had made into family life in America, I couldn't stop. So I was sort of trapped, happily trapped, for 12 years with it. And I'm still playing Jessica from time to time and, and loving it. I, I wouldn't want to let go of that lady. What, what did you like about her? She was the sort of woman I like, and therefore I, I enjoyed playing her. And being Jessica was second nature to me because she embodied all of the, the qualities that I like about women. She was uh, valiant and liberal, athletic, and uh, exciting and, and, and sexy, and all kinds of good stuff that women are of a certain age and are not given credit for. So to be able to play that uh, gave me tremendous uh, sort of pleasure, and I, I'm so glad I've done it. You know, the press release for the Kennedy Center Honor describes you as a beloved actress, which I think is pretty accurate, but do you, do you feel beloved? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, from from playing Jessica Fletcher, yes, I do. I do feel a sense of tremendous warmth from the American public who have known and loved that program. I, I really do. I know they, they... I don't know whether they're mixing me up with a character, and it really doesn't matter. The main thing is I have... The, I feel their gratitude so often for all the nights... Well, I thank you so very much for talking with us, and congratulations again on the Kennedy Center Honor. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and as I say, I listen to your program all the time. Angela Lansbury speaking to Terry Gross in 2000. She died last week at age 96. On Monday's Fresh Air, cookbook author and promoter of indigenous cuisine, Sean Sherman. He's behind this year's James Beard Award-winning restaurant, Awamni. 
It serves Native American cuisine and only uses ingredients indigenous to North America. Sherman is a member of the Oglawa Lakota tribe and grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. and Cooley. I had a dream.